Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, my guest is Lynn Johnston, the creator of the classic comic strip For Better or For Worse, certainly one of my favorite strips, and a strip that uh, really chronicled the life of an extended family over that same period of time. Unlike most comic strips, uh, the characters in For Better or Worse uh, grew, changed, got older, had interesting, complex lives and life experiences, and yet the series never lost its naturalistic feel or its amazingly sweet sense of humor. I think you'll hear a lot of that from Lynn in the following hour. Um, She was an absolute delight to speak to, one of the nicest people I've had a chance to uh, chat with, as well as just a... uh, wonderful creative force. Um, This is just one of my favorite interviews I've ever had a chance to do, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks for listening. Please leave feedback in all the usual places. (laughs) Congratulations on the anniversary. It's about its 40th anniversary of the strip. Is that right? It is. It is. In September this month, uh, the strip started, uh, September of 79. It just, it seems, well, it is a lifetime ago. Several people's lifetimes ago, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I was in my 30s when I signed that contract. And um, although I've been looking through boxes of photographs and see me as I was then and Kathy Guyswhite and Jim Unger and, uh, you know, all the Tom Wilson and all the wonderful people that I met when I first uh, started working for Universal Press just a lifetime ago, two lifetimes ago. And uh, so many of these people are gone now, which is, uh, mm. oh, it's sobering. It is. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, unfortunately, that's a journey we all go through in life. Um, well, how old are you? May, may I ask? Oh, of course you may. I'm 53. So, um, ah, you have a very youthful voice, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I'm going, I've gone through a lot of the same transitions in life, you know. Well, of course, losing your parents is always the toughest thing to deal with. Um, yes, yes, it is. But also having... I lost that. mine at the age... I lost my parents. My parents were both 72 when they died, one right after the other, and I'm 72 now. So once I get past this year... It's free sailing. <laughs> That's it. Well, you're in bonus time now anyway, right? Uh, you just moved back well, to North Van. I, I heard in, in your interview with Curtis that you're getting to reconnect with some old friends. Oh, gosh, yes. I hang out with people that I went to elementary school with. And the funny thing is, is that we all in our hearts look the same, even though, you know, it, it's it's difficult to, to see past the lines and the gray hair now. But... Um, the only time we really look old is in photographs, when mm-hmm. we're close to each other, when we're sitting across the table and having a coffee together. You know, the years don't exist. You're still on the Ridgeway School playground and still the same age as we were when we first met, right? You can fantasize anything when you're talking to an old friend, but it's photographs when it's a static image that you look and say, who the hell is that? Right. I do that all the time. Like, <laughs> oh, wait, that's that's who I am? That's just not right. 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 I mean, it's, it, and, you know, I remember in my 20s making jokes about, you know, old farts, you know, Wrinkle City, Menopause Manor, watching some old bitty walk across the street with a walker. And now <laughs> that's pretty close to me, right? And the amazing thing is, you don't realize this when you're young, but when you are that old person with the, you know, the glasses covering your glaucoma glasses, you know, 
um, you really don't feel any different in your heart than you were when you were 13, 15, mm-hmm. 18, 20. I think my best years certainly physically, mentally were between, say, 35 and 55. I think I did my best work then. And uh, I'm, and so I have tremendous uh, respect for people in their 20s who are doing phenomenal work because that's when you have the energy and before you have your family, that's when you have the time. And people in their 20s are producing the most amazing work. What's something you've read recently that you really enjoy or took in that you enjoy? Well, I recently saw a fabulous young performer. Actually, it was last night on YouTube, and he's got to be in his 20s. And I, I, if I'd known you were going to ask, I would have gone back and looked through <laughs> his all right. But he can, he can just play everything. And the music over the past, I don't know, 10 years anyways, has been so abysmally awful that I have run out of restaurants, bars, clothing stores because I couldn't stand the thud, thud, thud and the same four chords and the same whining women um, that I just am so hopeful now that there's going to be music in our lives again. I just think every generation does things their own different way. And, you know, frankly, a lot of the music I listened to when I was in my 20s, you know, that was the early 1980s. There's not a lot of great music that came out of that era or I kind of rediscovering some of the great music I suppose um, you know well I'm looking back at the Eagles yeah and uh, and um, you know even the Beatles when they their later work was just fabulous um, you know where's the craftsmanship in the music now and get away from the electronic repetitive crud it's just you know it's too easy. And who's going to be humming along to some of the stuff we hear now? Yeah, Nobody in 30 years. They're mm-hmm. still going to be playing the Eagles and the Beatles and, uh, you know, just uh, just uh, going back in time to when music really had some heart and soul and guts and talent. Pardon me. I'm on a rant. <laughs> <laughs> You're entitled. Uh, at a certain point, we all get in our rants. Um, so you, t- you touched... Uh, for a minute there. Steely Dan, there's another one. Steely, Steely Dan. Dan, oh yeah. Holy smokes, what a group. Anyways, I digress. Yeah, well, Sorry, that, okay. now, now you got me thinking about music and like, now like the song Ajo's in my head for like Steely Dan and just how unique and remarkable that stuff was. Wow. Um, oh yeah, you bet. Well, so you touched a bit on, um, on joining the comic strip fraternity, I suppose, is a pretentious way of saying it. Um, you had the most remarkable way of kind of getting discovered and getting your uh, contract. Yeah, I think it was unusual in that most people uh, apply. You know, they they send in their um, their folios and they, uh, you know, wait for rejection slips, which inevitably comes from what I hear from a lot of people. But my work was sent to them, as Kathy Geiswhite's was as well. Kathy's mother sent Kathy's work in to Universal Press. And I had worked with a publisher in Minneapolis who sent my... I had done three little books of cartoons, and he sent those to Universal Press. And um, then there's just sheer terror of uh, being offered a contract when you have really nothing to go with. No, mm-hmm. no, no characters developed, no storyline, no ideas for a comic strip, just this contract. So yeah, so you had just done three little books that were like single panel cartoons about 
parenthood at the time your kids were really young and um, somehow reached a syndicate and uh, or friends sent to the syndicate and they very quickly offered you a 20 year contract to produce a strip and then you somehow persuaded them to give you six months to formulate the strip. Pretty much, yeah. When they when they uh, were interested in my work, they wanted three weeks of, of dailies right away, as fast as I could do them, and that was a panic. We um, were uh, I was married again, had a, another baby, and was moving to northern Manitoba to an isolated uh, mining town, as far north in Manitoba, Canada as you can go. It's right on the if you can visualize the North American continent and you see where James Bay comes below Hudson's Bay, that little teardrop of a, of a bay there, we were on the same level as that uh, on the Saskatchewan-Manitoba border. And you really couldn't get there unless you were flying. It was really an Arctic community. So we were moving up there as I got this request for three weeks of uh, daily comics as soon as I could get them out. And I was literally doing these on packing boxes. I had no drafting table or anything. I was sitting (laughs) with my feet spread expecting my, you know, second baby and drawing on on, uh, packing boxes. And I really didn't know whether I'd, I'd hear from these people again. I was confident that what I sent was the best I could do, which is all you can do, right? And they sent me a 20-year contract just as we were wrapping up and, and moving. That's just so amazing. Um, it is. So I, I, I got to yeah. talk to you about, like, so you're obviously a very sociable person. Uh, personal contact means a lot to you. You went to this tiny town in the middle of nowhere. That must have been tough. You grew up in Vancouver, right? <laughs> I grew up in North Vancouver, which is just across the pond from the main city. And, uh, you know, so you really are in the heart of the beast here. And I moved to Hamilton, Ontario, which is another fairly big city. And when I met my second husband, um, I I loved the thought of the adventure of going north. I had settled into my little house in Dundas and already had a child. And he was in dental school, and his plan was to learn to fly, buy a small aircraft, and work as a flying dentist up in northern Canada, somewhere, anywhere. He just wanted to provide a service to the um, First Nations communities up there. And there are so many isolated communities that get very little medical attention. So it was a really worthy cause, and I love to fly. And so I met him up at the airport, actually. I was looking in the windows of small aircraft thinking, who owns these? How I, w- I would love to learn to fly. And um, he uh, came in, landed, walked across the tarmac. We got a conversation going, and he said, do you want to fly to the next airport for hamburger? And I had my baby on my hip, and I, it was a windy day in March, and I said, well, sure. I, you know, I had met him before. He was an acquaintance from, you know, years beforehand. Uh, he had worked at CHTV with my first husband, and he was a familiar face, and I thought, well, what the heck, why not? He had his pilot's license, off we went, and for me, it was magic, a magic carpet that took you up into the sky, and son of a gun, so we started to go together, and I would go with him when he was taking his float uh, uh, license, and um, I even learned to fly when when we were together there. Um, He would turn over the controls to me. And I loved flying over these steel mills because you get this rush of hot air and the, air, the aircraft would bounce up high into the sky. I mean, it was just a joy. I just loved it. 
So we uh, we married after he finished dental school, and we bought an aircraft, and we moved up to Lynn Lake, Manitoba, just as this contract was happening. And as it turns out, it was probably the best gift I could ever have been given would be to spirited away to a small, isolated village when when the success happened, and it happened all too fast. And I'm pretty theatrical, and I love... You know, I love stand-up comedy and performance and all of that stuff and always imagined myself, you know, doing more in terms of uh, theater. I was always interested in, you know, I don't know. Anyways, I was too theatrical to be uh, having success like that in a big city because you're accessible then. Mm -hmm. If you're in a tiny, tiny little mining town, nobody's going to fly the number of hours it takes to get up to Lynn Lake, Manitoba to see somebody who's drawing cartoons. So I was, first of all, I was isolated from publicity, which was very, very healthy for me. And the other thing was that when you're in a small town, you get to know everybody. And there's no such thing as class, you know, because we're all in the same fishbowl. And you become a nicer person, but you also become aware of everybody's circumstances and so you know the guy that's sleeping in the doorway of the of the drugstore and you know the girl whose husband was killed in a plane crash and you know the woman at the front you know counter at the grocery store and the guy that owns the grocery store and the woman who lives upstairs the grocery store and the and the woman who's the the newspaper editor and the newspaper's two mimeographed sheets that comes out once a week i mean it was <laughs> right. it was being closeted in in society and and being privileged to know a lot of people in in very close circumstances. So that really is helpful to somebody who's a writer. You get to see other people's points of view. And when I started the strip, I expected none of the characters to change in age. Everybody's going to stay the same. And it was going to be, there was going to be some black and white. Ellie was going to be a, a, a woman who really resented being a housewife and jealous of her neighbor who was a successful uh, uh, nursing uh, staff member at a big hospital who was going up the ladder there. And there was going to, she was going to be Ellie's nemesis. But living in a small town teaches you that there's no all bad in anybody. I mean, we're all a mix of good and bad and fine and, 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 and dandy and down dirty. And I mean, we're all a mix, right? So there's no such thing as the ultimate villain and, and the ultimate heroine. So everybody became human very quickly in this strip. After a year, everybody started to have personalities that were quite realistic and everybody started to grow. The children started to grow and circumstances It just seemed to naturally evolve as I started reading them. Uh, and there's so many yeah, moments where you have the person who starts out as a just a, a bad, char nasty character turns out to be something very different. Um, just earlier today, I was reading uh, some the stories around Jeremy Jones, who's oh, always yeah. oh, so right. mean to April at the beginning, just a bully in school. And then um, his he turns as you get to know him better and he just reveals other sides of himself. Yeah, yeah, you find out. In fact, um, I've done a number of workshops in, in elementary schools and things like that, and I talk to the kids about the characters that I want them to design, and I say, think about Alien. 
think about that creepy thing that pulls itself out of the works in the bowels of the spaceship to terrorize and eat everybody and drool all over things. So what does he do on a Saturday night when he's home alone and his feet <laughs> up, has a fear? You know, what does he watch on TV, you know? And, and is he married? But, you know, or is it a he? Is it a she, you know? What, you know, what happens when he gets a boil on his butt and can't walk for a day? I mean, what's going on in the background of this guy? And so everybody laughs and says, yeah, I never thought about that. What, you know, Godzilla, what does he do this day off, right? And so, uh, and so that's the way the characters were for me. What's the other side of this character? It can't be all bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you. there's a quote from you on the site, um, I know all the people so well. I know where the houses are, what their furniture's like, where they work. I know their voices, their mannerisms, their thoughts are open to me. Um, which is just so interesting. Like, you really did see them as real people. Well, I think anybody who writes a, a novelist must certainly live in every body of every character, knowing their innermost thoughts and feelings, right? And I know when you're an actor and you're given a role, you have to study that character so that you can play that character realistically. You, In fact, I, I, I know that there are people who find it awfully hard to get out of that character once mm-hmm. the movie's over. They spend months as a villain or months as a, somebody who has, a, you know, maybe a blindness or, or other horrific thing that they have to portray in a, in a, in a movie. And afterwards, they have to come out of that person and be them again. But you're doing that for so 90 for people, though, or something. That, that's uh, well, really, that's like a Russian novel. Enough. One character inside another. Uh, well, it's it really it's um, only just maybe ten people. Okay. But it, it, towards the end, there were just really too many characters, which is another really good reason for stopping when I did. Too many characters and and too many realistic situations. I I just pushed myself into being someone who told short stories and. Um, Suddenly, I was no longer drawing funny stuff, but I couldn't stretch the faces, and, you know, uh, everybody had a perfectly believable skeletal structure inside, so I couldn't elongate arms or, you know, enlarge eyeballs and do all those wonderful things that smack you in the head with with, with goofiness, right? Mm -hmm. I'd lost that. Do you like the earlier strips where the cartooning is so loose? Uh, it, it is remarkably absolutely. loose compared to the newer ones. Right, absolutely. The, the stuff that I did, um, say, in the middle 10 years or so, are the best just because they're, you know, there was confidence to the writing. I think there was, there was humor to it, but also the characters were elastic and the backgrounds weren't so detailed. I didn't dwell so much on every brick on the house and every branch on the tree, but I kept wanting to get better and better and better, do better, draw better. And uh, when you do that, you sometimes uh, perfect yourself into a, a, a state where it's just too, too, um, I don't know, too, too perfect. And nothing is perfect. Everything has to be fluid and loose and and uh, fleeting. You know, I really, I really drew myself into a box. Huh? So you almost felt like you got too precise, too, too clean in a way. Exactly. That's that's the best way to put it. It was too precise. That's... Yeah, it was engineered. <laughs> 
I guess, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because so many artists, especially who strive for the perfect line or the perfect rendering. Um, but I think with humor especially, well, of course you did. It's, it's hard to categorize the work you did also. As you said, like, especially towards the end, it almost veered into short stories. Yeah, yeah. And, and also I was... Um, I was pressuring myself to do some relevant stories, too. I mean, and all the characters, I mean, the, the initial Elizabeth, then Michael, and April were all, you know, adults and teens, and, and there are significant stories in, in this time of your life. And so significant stories don't necessarily lend themselves to great humor, and in the end, it's an entertainment medium, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, comic art. You turn to it for for some relief from what's going on in the news, and I was starting to create stuff that was in the news, you know, bullying and and uh, you know feminist issues and uh, and the death of the parents and things like that. And I thought, well, maybe you know, th- there were times when I I did uh, do some serious stories that happened to run at very serious times, like the story of the death of Farley happened at the same time as the Oklahoma bombing. Mm-hmm. So it was a real tragedy. And then Michael and Deanna get married, and the wedding takes place at the time when the Twin Towers came down. Mm. And so you look at it and you say, well, if I'm going to do a serious story, what's going to run in the headlines the day that the story runs? And if people turn to the comics page for relief from the news... Uh, you can't, you can't not fulfill that hope. I mean, there were times when the serious stories were good, but I was seeing that you couldn't run them for longer than two weeks because people would be exhausted and they, come on, let's get back to the laughs again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a different, it's, it's part of the mechanism of being in a daily newspaper strip where you need to have something to bring people back every day. Um, right. And some level of predictability. Right, and I found that I could write, I could write more confidently if I was writing little vignettes. Like, and then what happened? Something makes you laugh. The dog does something, or the kids do something. But then what happened? What is the comeuppance to that? So that's how the little stories started. But they started as as simple little funny vignettes. You know, somebody does something at school and lies about it, and then the next day, and the next day, there's the comeuppance. But uh, then the, the serious stories started to happen. Well, you have a mix in in a lot of your stories of sadness and happiness. So, like, um, Deanna and, um, well, like, Elizabeth and Anthony get married at the same time that the grandma is, pass, is dying. Um, right. Uh, you know, April gets, April has that horrible thing where she goes down to the river and nearly gets washed away. The dog saver saves her and the dog passes away. Um, Deanna's auto accident brings her close to Michael. I mean, there, there's this really, like, re- recurring motif where tragedy leads to happiness or vice versa. Like, I guess it keeps us all on an even keel. Well, I, I kept up with the title, for better or for worse. Mm. Right? Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Um, and I was charged with producing a strip right at the very beginning when I signed that huge contract of doing something that was not all roses from the woman's point of view in a family. A lot of the family strips were done by guys who I I assume were given the freedom to work in their studio and uh, then when they came out dinner was on the the table and 
the wife was wiping her hands on her apron and saying, how was your day, dear? <laughs> and, and you can't really write and draw serious family stories about laundry and kids and garbage and dog paw prints and whatever <laughs> happens. You know, right. from, from that side of the, of the drafting table, you have to be, you know, cleaning out the trash with your own two hands. So, yeah, so I, I was able to, to do what I was asked to do. And because of the wonderful company I worked for, I was given tremendous freedom. I was, I was not edited very closely at all after the first year. Um, they let me just fly, and, uh, and I, I was able to do pretty well anything I wanted to do. I, they trusted me with that. You know, there were times when, when an idea was rejected, but then that has to happen, and you learn with everything that's rejected by your editor. You say, well, in, in the end, I appreciate the fact that he didn't let me send that out there because I, I probably wouldn't have been happy with it once it ran. Hmm. What's the example of that, something that you were persuaded not to do? Well, there were some ideas that I had about... Um, you know, child abuse and uh, uh. about infidelity. And um, I had this, there was an imaginary uh, neighborhood, of course, and Annie next door, her husband was not only a junk collector, and their whole yard was full of junk that he picked up, and he was getting to be a hoarder, but he was also unfaithful to his wife. And Annie knew about it, but um, wasn't able to pinpoint what her anxiety was and you know eventually she's going to find out and I alluded to all of this without getting into it and uh, you know after a while talking it over with my editor thinking you know that would be a long-term investigation with a lot of you know pretty sensitive intimate stuff going mm -hmm. on and mm -hmm. really at the time that I started this idea the kids were still young and in school and and life was still you know, the easy going ups and downs of the Patterson family, and should I really delve into this? And the crazy thing was that in my own life, that was actually going on. So maybe deep down inside, I knew that this was territory I better not touch. Because you don't, you don't break up a marriage until you know for sure that something is going on. But you can suspect, and you're guilty for suspecting, and it's very easy to believe what you're told because... You, you don't want to believe the truth. So in not doing these stories, perhaps I was covering my own, uh, uh, I don't know, delicate, sensitive background, you know, and not wanting people to know that much. It was the strip kind of a respite, a, a relief for you during those times when you could just escape into a different world? Well, you have total control in a comic strip. Yeah. I mean, they call it creators, which is rather a large word, you know, you're the creator of the comic strip. But it's a world that you do create, and you have total control. You know who who's going to do what, who's going to say what. You are the dog, you are the kid, you are the grandparent, you are every character, and you know, you know, you can choreograph what's going to happen, who's going to die, who's going to get married, and to whom. So real life is uh, quite the opposite, of course. <laughs> you know, you yeah. serendipity all the way, you know, and you have to hope for the best. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, life is just a series of accidents in a lot of ways, right? Um, yeah. And open doors. Yeah. And 
wonderful opportunities. And I mean, with every bad thing, uh, good things happen, right? And that's why it was for better or for worse, it was up and down. I was having lunch with a friend the other day, and it was a horrible lunch. It was just, you know, we were eating this food, and it was just like, I can't believe I ordered this, and we chuffed our way through it. But the, the laugh was that with every bad lunch, it makes a good lunch 100% better, right? <laughs> you say, wow, compared to yesterday. And that's why I don't think there's anything anything like heaven. I mean, because if everything is perfect, we get so bored. You know, the same old music and the same great food and the same great sex and the same great relationships and you look perfect. How boring. You know, let's stir things up. You know, let's uh, tell God off tomorrow and see what happens. So. <laughs> you got me thinking about great old music. There's a... A, a talking head song called Heaven that's about exactly that, which I just love. It's one of the songs that stuck with me for years. Um, well, I'm not the only one who thinks that way, I know. <laughs> Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens, is the chorus. Uh, but uh, yeah. so you, you talk about... Uh, how, so how far in advance do you plan character arcs, then, or did you plan the character arcs? Because um, there's so many cases where like um, people meet early on, and then um, end up reconnecting in some ways. Um, you know, the, the whole story with Lilliputs, for example, it's always in the background and it becomes a prominent thing. When you first uh, brought it in, did you have any idea, for example, Ellie would be buying the store and running a store for a few years? No. No, a lot of this was just as life really happens, that it was just, um, it just flowed into the storyline. It just worked. And people criticized me for having, uh, you know, Elizabeth marries her childhood sweetheart, and uh, Michael actually married the girl that uh, he met at university, and and and, and had known at uh, in elementary school, and everything is full circle. Um, but in reality, my own life has been that way. I right now I'm partnered with a wonderful man that I met in grade five. Wow. I've moved back to my own, own little hometown. I'm living on the same street I grew up in, not planned. It was, it was, I, I was looking for a place to buy and I was driving down the street and it was a for sale sign on a place opposite my old house and I went in and bought it. It was just right for me. And, uh, you know, it's in North Vancouver between the bridges. I can overlook the shipyards and hear the sound of the frog horns in the morning. I mean, it's, uh, it's home. And so uh, I can walk to my old elementary school. And Paul and I met at our 50th high school reunion. And I've done exactly what the characters in For Better or For Worse did. I've reconnected with someone I knew in elementary school. Wow. That's funny. Life imitates art, huh? It does. It does. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, because, uh, well, it's a, I think it's really one of the strong points of the strip. Um, so, like, April and her friend Becky, or Rebecca, when she becomes a star, a music, musical star, um, their relationship is so founded in reality. I mean, they met in the first day of preschool, and so they have this friendship that can survive anything. And I think that's so much like real life. Well, you look a lot at a lot of these businesses, these big successful businesses. A lot of these have been started by people who met in school. I think even Facebook is always started by people who met in school. So, and bands, band members. I mean, I think again, the Eagles probably were people who knew each other as you know teenagers. And mm -hmm. so, a lot of things that are successful later in life are you know the seed of it began in high school. 
well, I'm sure you were drawing all your life too, and it just became this this uh, uh, love for you. It became a, a career that kind of carried you through everything. It was the one thing that gave me confidence because I was not happy at home. I look in the mirror and I think, what an ugly kid. And you know, I was a fighter, a scrapper. And it wasn't until high school when I was editor of the school annual that I really realized that I fit into an art career and a graphic art publishing career because the, the teachers could see that potential in me. But I didn't have a lot of friends through school. So the fact that I could draw was, I think of it as my Dumbo's feather. Mm. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. like that, that glass of wine you carry around at a cocktail party. You don't know anybody and you don't want to be bothered with your stupid small talk. Hi, how are you? And, you know, how long have you known so-and-so? Blah, blah, blah. And you've got your obligatory Dumbo's feather of cocktail in your hands. And if you put that down, you might as well go back to your room in the hotel because you don't belong, right? And so that uh, the ability, always in the background, knowing that I could draw was my my glass of wine at a cocktail party that even if you think I'm a schlump, at least I can draw. Yeah, at least I can do the one thing. Well, so very few people actually make careers out of the things that they aspire to do when they were young, though. Um, I'll often have it's conversations hard. with it's people hard. about that very time. So I write, I, I'm a writer. I write uh, comic histories. I have several books out through Tomorrow's Publishing about the history of American comic books, which is why I ended up doing my classic comics podcast. And um, I talk to friends at work or whatever, and I'm literally the only one who's doing the work that he wanted to do when he was 15 or 16. Um, And I feel privileged to be in that position in my life. Privileged, but at the same time, you're a real hard worker, and you're focused, and you're dedicated, and you, you know, you have a goal, and you, you respect your work, and you have confidence in what you're doing. And I think sometimes that drives you forward, and if you're good at what you do, you can succeed. I mean, there are times when you're good at what you do, and it has to be a hobby. But occasionally, and you're an example of it, you can succeed and make a career of what you love to do most. And sometimes the danger of that is, my goodness, I don't have a hobby. Uh-huh. What am I going to do with a game? And your work becomes your hobby. And I know that when I when I, when I had my 20-year contract and turned into 30 years, um, you're working all the time. You're always on record. Whenever you're traveling, if you're a writer, you're remembering the smell and the scent, uh, the breeze and the crunch of the rocks under your feet on the shore. And yeah, I mean, all of these senses you're absorbing and you're 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 recording all the time if you're a writer and an artist mm-hmm. and a cartoonist. And so, you you know, your job is with you all the time, but you still have to have that work ethic and that energy and that focus to make a career of it. Yeah, one of the things you talked about with Curtis is it took you a few years before you really had that confidence where you could, I think you were talking about sitting on the couch and um, just coming up with your ideas, and some I, some days it would flow and some days it wouldn't, and knowing that yeah. over time it'll, it'll just even itself out. That's right, it, and it, you have to trust that that will come back. And uh, at first it's frightening when you can't think of anything, but you have to trust that it will happen. And there can be a day where you need to write, you want to write, you've got all your stuff, you've got your coffee, your notepad, your, you know, you've got your lunch, I mean, whatever it is, and you sit down to write and nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And But you have to sit there 
and daydream about the characters and who they are. And it's like a symphony where you're directing, you know, now it's the horns and now it's the, and, and now it's the violins. I mean, am I going to be the dog today? Am I going to be Michael? Am I going to be Elizabeth? And who, who have I not highlighted in the past? And where are the storylines leading me? And who do I need to focus on now? And all of those, thoughts have to be there for you on the day when you cannot think of any dialogue. There's no punchline. There's nothing funny. And you just have to sit there and force yourself to be all of the characters one at a time. You know, if you're the dog, you have to feel what it's like to (laughs) shake off a coat full of water, right? You know, you just have to be the characters. And then the next day, or the day after that, you'll write two weeks worth of stuff without a without a hitch mm-hmm. and I don't know where that magic comes from I really don't and it's one of the things that we often talk about or at least when I first got into the industry the other young new people in the industry would all come together and say how do you write and where do the ideas come from we, we don't know uh, uh, Jim Davis used to say Schenectady you know where the <laughs> ideas come from Schenectady he wanted to build you know you get interviewed so many times when you're newly successful right that he Jim Davis he does Garfield right he decided that he would like to have a suit and hat and every section of the suit and hat would have the answers to all these most often questions you know <laughs> you just have the brim of your hat that would say since I was a child you know well I used Strathmore B paper you know <laughs> uh, for, for so many years uh, you, you know I mean all of these yes I do love lasagna and yeah yeah, the favorite answer was six weeks dailies, eight weeks Sundays. Which how far in advance do you have to? So he'd pull open his lapel, you know, six weeks dailies, eight weeks Sundays. And we laughed about it, but it's a curio that if somebody's interviewing you wants to know, they wanted to know too. Where did the ideas come from? We had no idea. Well, there's a few different ways that people approach the idea. Some people keep a notepad and are continually referring back to it. Some people like will get butcher paper, maybe now Microsoft Project or something, and literally plan everything out. It sounds like you allowed yourself to improvise a lot. I did, but I did keep notes. In fact, this was the time when we all had checkbooks in our purses, right? We wrote checks for our groceries and checks for our insurance and things like that. And you always had a checkbook in your in your in your car or your purse, and my checkbook was filled with gag ideas. I mean, there's no possible way I could throw out uh, the stubs of uh, my checks or the back part of the folder, I mean, <laughs> full of gag ideas. Did you ever get complaints from your kids about being present in the moment? Mom, yeah. stop thinking about everything else but, but us, you know? Well, they were, both of my kids are very funny, and uh, my son would walk up to me, with holding a piece of cake in his hand and icing on his face, just making sure I could see it. And he'd say, can I have some cake before dinner? And I'd say, no. And he'd be standing there eating it right there. And they would do things to me. And I remember one time he came in and asked me a few questions. And I was saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he said, can I take the scissors to the shears, like cut the curtains in the living room? And I said, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he put his face in front of me and said, you're not listening to me, are you? So, I mean, yeah, it was tough for the kids. It really was. That and, and traveling. Because, um, you know, you're being a writer, you know what it's like. You're, the work that you do is inside and kind of solitary. And you just look forward to getting out there and being 
away from it. And for me, because I was on record all the time, if I was on an airplane, I might have three hours where I had no choice but to relax, read a book, have a drink, you know. Right. And I loved those times. And it was not easy for my family. Even though I had wonderful sitters, I had uh, my mother and father-in-law lived always. We lived within a five-minute walk from them. Even when we moved to North Bay from this little mining town, my, grand, my parents-in-law moved too, and we bought houses next to each other. And my kids were always over at Ruth and Tom's house. So I had, you know, we had an extended family that covered everything. And yet, um, it was tough for the kids when I took off and played. I remember my son watching me leave with a suitcase and he put his hands on his hips and said, are you turning into Lynn Johnston again? <laughs> you know, and I was. Right. I was. In fact, if I could play the role of Lynn Johnston, if I did a, a stand-up, Thing at a at an event, and there was a cocktail party afterwards. I was Lynn Johnston. I know no long. I didn't need my little obligatory glass of wine or cocktail. I could walk around and say the same things and the same platitudes and respond to the same questions and be, you know, I would be the puppet that I I was as Lynn Johnston. But if I was suddenly in a room full of strangers, I needed that. I needed that glass of wine. I had no Dumbo's feather. And, and, yeah, in, in a way, I kind of enjoyed that notoriety. I enjoyed being Lynn Johnston. And there are times when you have to curb that arrogance. You're know, standing in line for a hamburger and say, well, I should be at the front of the line. <laughs> <laughs> and, and really, you know, so uh, you got to wash the old pits like everybody else, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But, I mean, you're... <laughs> You also needed to be out hanging out with your peers and, and going to the parties and stuff. Um, it's all part of the, the lifestyle, also part of keeping yourself balanced. I mean, it sounds like you had some great times at the National Cartoon Society. Oh, yeah. Tremendous rewards in, in the hard work. I mean, the hard work was balanced with wonderful rewards. I mean, I got, I got to meet all of my heroes. You know, people who work for Mad Magazine and Will Eisner and Charles Schultz and, you know, people, oh, Frank and Ollie from Disney, two of the grand old men. I mean, I just and got to know them and borrowed the cars and stayed in the guest room. And uh, what a joy. Phyllis Diller, I got to know Phyllis, and she was one of the most important of my connections, just a fabulous person to know. And when I went to her house, she showed me her joke drawers. She had a, a bureau upstairs. And each drawer, I mean, it was a big bureau, and each drawer you pull out, and there were these uh, four by five, you know, three by five cards with jokes on them, and thousands of jokes, literally thousands, wow. alphabetical order, uh, and and in subject matter order. And when she opened the drawers to this massive bureau, she said, "I wrote these all myself. This is my work." And I thought, yeah, over the years, all of us who are in this business of writing have thousands of lines. I mean, if you looked at all the gags in comic art, I mean, it would fill, you know, endless bureaus of thought and mm. in, in comedy. I was so impressed by her. She she was somebody that really gave me tremendous sense of, of uh, unique belonging, belonging to a, a very interesting and um, accomplished bunch of people. Yeah. Is that, that that's really, I, I know almost nothing about her. Um, aside from obviously what I've seen on television over the years, 
Uh, it sounds like she really achieved the fame that she hoped to have, um, but worked extremely hard every day to, to accept it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was very proud of the fact that she wrote all her own material. And other people, like, she worked with Bob Hope a great deal, and the two of them traveled a lot to the USO events overseas and things like that. And But he had writers working for him, and uh, he would often do his monologues, and they were memorized. But she um, not only could write her own material, but she was also very spontaneously funny, which a lot of comedians are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you watch comedians in cars having coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, some of those encounters are boring as hell. Others are hilarious because some of these people have the ability to riff and, and expand on a line and you're giving them a line and they create something that goes with it and they're just naturally funny. Other comedians are not. It's, uh, you know, it's hard work and it's uh, writing and memorizing. It's a curious business just making people laugh. Right. Well, so that gets back to you loving, wanting to be a stand-up comic in some ways. You could play that game a little bit, and then you could go back to your normal life, um, being with the family. I think if you're, you I got think to if balance you're making it. your living as a, as a stand-up comic, there is no normal life. Mm. I think it's probably the hardest job on the planet. I really do. And and it's uh, that and being a, a chef at a snotty restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful and talented and and give them what they want 100% of the time, you know, like you're feeding people when you're a stand-up comic, you're, and they're not just happy with, uh, with what you give them today, they want more and more and funnier and funnier because laughter's a drug, right? It's a drug, and so you want to suck that laughter out of comedians and performers, you want that as an audience. And there are times when your audience, you hate them because they want too much. If you're a musician, you can play the same song over and over again. The audience demands that. But if you're a comedian, they want new gags. They want funny stuff. And that's where YouTube is just such a, a terrible thing for comedians because people can see your material right there on YouTube. And when you come to their town to do the show, they'll sit back in their chair and say, oh, I've heard that one before. How can you... How can you feed this insatiable maw. You cannot. And so that's where drugs come in, and that's where suicide comes in, mm. and that's where this devastation comes in. I think stand-up comedy is the hardest thing. So for those of us who are writers like yourself and myself, if we can work in the privacy of our studio at home and put our work out there, and when you do put it out there, you fix the mistakes, you think. Right. It's the best you could do that day, but if you're on the stage, you know, you're within pelting distance of the first tomato, right? And, you know, they can reach you. So uh, it's it's a tough one. So I, for that, I had tremendous respect for Phyllis as well because she, you know, she and Carol Burnett and all of these people, uh, you know, they just put their lives and their, their health on the line. Yeah, and and every moment they could just be stumbling, right? Um, yeah, you you yeah. had yeah anyone who's in the the kind of written arts has the chance to revise and and clean up their work. Um, so you you went back and along those lines, you got me thinking about uh, you went back and kind of revised some of your earliest strips. You were a little too loose, I think, for some of them, and then you ended up kind of feeling like that was a fool's errand to go cleaning up your early work. Am I getting that story yeah, right? Yeah, for the first three, 
for the first three years, it was kind of a staggering, uh, you know, walk until I could get up and sort of, you know, have a full gait that was comfortable. So that staggering first three years, I really had not uh, settled who the characters were or how these eventual storylines were going to uh, evolve. So I went back to the roots of it and I cleaned up a lot of stuff so that the later stuff made sense. Then I took out some things that, that didn't make sense. I, and uh, uh, Connie, this other neighbor who Ellie was going to be very jealous of, was taking flying lessons when I first started the strip because I was taking flying lessons. And I thought, this is magic. This is incredible. What a what an experience. And I wanted to share that. But I only mentioned that uh, Connie was taking flying lessons and never went back to it partly because it was such a huge subject to cover and she was an auxiliary character. And um, the other was that I, I had to establish everybody else and, and mm -hmm. what their lives were like. So I couldn't rush into that. So I think we chopped that right out. That's just one example of some of the things that I changed. So you changed a few, but you were you mostly were happy with it. I mean, you, you obviously had a chance to reread and comment on everything in the first volume of the collection. Um, how did that feel to you rereading it after these years? Well, I see that even though I thought I was hiding a lot of our private family truth in, in the fantasy and, and the comedy of it, I see that I was telling an awful lot of family truth right mm. there. And you can't help it. You really can't. You, you write and draw what you know. And even if the names and, and uh, places are changed to protect the innocent, it's still something you know. Well, sure. And the, the parents were analogs for you. I mean, your husband was a dentist and John's a dentist. I mean, right. just even there, the parallels are pretty odd. There's a little, the, a couple jokes about the pretty hygienists that you threw in there, which I'm sure are coming from real life. Well, that eventually came to haunt me, right? Because yeah. that's what eventually what happened was that, uh, you know, um, the pretty hygienist became more than just a pretty hygienist. So uh, it, uh, it really, you know, it, it, and that happened at a time when I was thinking of wrapping up the strip at the end anyway. So um, so that is one of the things that, that made me look at the comics and decided, you know, I'm going to climb out of this fantasy world and live my own life and be real. Yeah, well, you certainly had a great career of it. Um, it's interesting sort of fame you get from being a comic strip uh, artist. Um, you're one of the few artists who my parents would recognize her name, you know, you and Charles Schultz and a few others. Um, and yet, you know, we, had, we certainly had no idea what you looked like except for the few rare times that you would appear on TV. Um, so this is an odd sort of fame. Well, it's a healthy fame. It's much healthier, I think, than any other famous quote-unquote thing because uh, you, you can um, escape from, from the publicity, which is, again, it's a drug. It's wonderful when people ask your opinion and I mean, to be interviewed. I mean, you're asking me questions about my life. You know, I can just walk <laughs> out of here and be nasty to everyone. <laughs> Don't you know who I am, right? <laughs> True, you know, but... And so that kind of drug is dangerous as well, right? It, it does not do you or your family any good at all. But, uh, yeah, so so for the strip to be running 
a second time is a joy and a gift, and it gives me a chance to stand back and look at it again. Um, I'm hearing from readers who were children when the strip came out, and now they're parents and saying, I'm looking at this from a totally different point of view. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how my mother felt, and now I do. And... Um, and so we're, we're, we continue to work with the comics uh, as, you, as you see them now. They're, they're running again. Some changes have been made. We're adding seatbelts in cars. And um, we recently had to remove the words Bill Cosby from one of the punchlines. Yeah, sadly. And, um, you know, so we're making a few, a few minor, minor changes. But the strip is running as it ran. And um, I, I just... I can't believe how how wonderful it is to see the work running a second time. But, I mean, I will read a book that I enjoyed a second time, so I'm grateful that people are happy to read it again. Yeah, I, do, I definitely got a different perspective on it now than when I was reading it as a kid. Um, I kind of fell away from reading your work um, when my when I moved out of the house and I stopped getting a newspaper. So it was a real education to get back, not education, it's a real pleasure to get back and uh, catch up with these characters um, and, yeah, get different perspectives on their lives. You must read an awful lot of comic art, an awful lot of graphic novels, an awful lot of dialogue. You must just be arsed in. Yeah, if you could see the photo of my office, I've got big bookshelves behind me <laughs> filled with comics. Although I go through a phase where I'm reading classic science fiction these days, so um, it's a different sort of entertainment, I suppose. Um, that stuff scares me, science fiction, because it's all coming true. Yeah, yeah, um, in good ways and in bad ways, um, and it's remarkable how much prescient work there is about um, our current political situation. Yes. Yes, it's all a very interesting story, isn't it? You can't make this stuff up, as they say. Oh, my God. Uh, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, because I'll just get depressed. Um, <laughs> you may be retired, but you're still busy. You're working on your, is it a fabric business? We've been doing fabric design for about the past four or five years, and we have not yet released them. We've just recently signed a contract with a licensing agency, and we're, we're doing some really interesting stuff. It's not for better or for worse. Uh, we're using the Farley the dog quite a bit in some of the patterns. But um, these are, you know, it's, uh, it's cartoon characters, and they're funny, but um, they, they look more like Paisley, and when you get close to them, you can see that it's robots oh, or zoo animals or cats or fish or funny dogs or funny birds, cats, dogs, all, all mixed up together. And each one of these patterns that I do uh, goes to a quilt designer who is just a genius. I love her to bits. And she's creating, she can create 30 patterns out of one design. So we have a tremendous number of colored, uncolored. I mean, the, the, the uh, magic of Photoshop allows you to do everything from black line to full color to monochromatic to whatever you want. So every pattern can be any size, any color. You can isolate one one character from a pattern and make a pattern out of that. So the the new technology, as much as we sometimes hate it, has given us infinite freedom. It's like looking out at the stars at night and wondering how far the universe goes when it comes to these patterns. We can 
take a simple pattern and turn it into hundreds of other ideas. So we're exploring that. And my job is the staff artist. I, that's all I want to do is draw. And um, we're working on a bunch of other things. Of course, we're, you know, I occasionally do spot art for the, for the strip and other publications as they come out. But um, for the most part, it's all completely new. And I'm also painting. I'm trying to get myself to leave that black line alone and to get into color and, and, and how one color pushes against another and leave a lump on the canvas and not smooth it out and try to make it perfect. Hmm. I want imperfection again. <laughs> <laughs> Is it abstract art or representational? It's a bit of both. Um, what I do is I take photographs of uh, things that I find the colors really uh, intriguing and colors that I wouldn't normally put together, you, you know, roses and greens. And, I mean, if you take a photograph of a hillside covered with um, fireweed, for example, fireweed, changes color it's uh, it's pastel pink and it's deep rosy red mm -hmm. and it's brown mm -hmm. and scarlet and then it'll be on a, a bed of uh, lichen which is pastel green i wouldn't put those colors together but in nature they're there so i take these photographs and then i use the photographs to create um uh realistic paintings but with a fantasy uh look to them they're realistic colors realistic design but it's it's different. Someday I'll do a show. Someday you'll see what I'm working on. Right now it's all experimental and it goes along with the fabric designs, which are black lines and, and illustrative. And alongside it, you'll see these big canvases of color, which are something totally new. Anyways, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great life if your body works and you're healthy. Yeah, well, I hope you're doing okay. I'm 72 and I'm doing okay. I don't think I've ever been happier. Wow. I think that's the key to longevity, too, is uh, stay happy and healthy if you can. Yeah, that's it. That's the secret to life in general. And stay connected to your friends. Yes. Yes. I have a, a wealth of good friends. Well, it's been a tremendous pleasure talking to you today. Well, thank you so much for the call, and I, I really do hope that you come up and visit. I have uh, your info written down here, and um, I'm thrilled that Curtis put us together. I, I love what you're doing, because if it wasn't for yourself and people like Curtis, a lot of us who, you know, blunder along drawing pictures for a living, our work would be lost to, to the wind, really giving stuff away and, and selling stuff and letting it sort of slip out into the garbage. I mean, the fact that you all um, are so uh, approving and um, interested in what we do has, uh, has given it all such credibility, really. Well, thank you. Uh, we wouldn't feel that way if there wasn't work that was worth celebrating and remembering. Um, like I like I mentioned, going back and rereading a lot of the old strips on your website, um, it's just been a tremendous pleasure. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you.